0: What we're going to look at today is a thought that really ties hard into our Sunday school lesson. And so if you were in Sunday school this morning, it will almost feel like you're hearing the same message again, Uh, maybe a little different way. But to kind of set this up for you, Zechariah is a minor prophet in your Old Testament, and his prophecy was given by God to him during a very interesting time period. Zechariah prophesied during the building of the temple in the book of Ezra. And so as we read his prophecy, we can kind of begin to see God working in a mighty and wonderful way in the lives of the children of Israel. And I'll tell you what happened this week and the way that this sermon came to be. I was reading down through just in my daily Bible reading. And as I read down through Zechariah chapter number eight, the first nine verses or so, I couldn't help but recognize what I was reading. And I don't mean recognize it in terms of I had read this before, of course I have, but I meant that more in terms of just what I've seen in my life at different stages and at different times that I that I have seen this before and and as a result of that I thought, wow, this is this is something special. What's the connections here? What are what is God wanting me to see and learn from this because there are times that my life doesn't look like this and there are times that it does. And maybe if I could unlock something from this passage of Scripture, I can see why it is that there are seasons that I, that I feel this to be true and seasons whenever I just really don't. Let's look at it here. Zechariah chapter number 8 and verse number 1. The Bible says again, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying... Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, there shall There shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in mine eyes, saith the Lord of hosts. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, ye that hear in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets, which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. As I read down through that passage of scripture, I thought, wow, there is something special happening here in the life of Israel. We're talking about a group of people that have just come out of captivity. We're talking about a group of people that are really still in captivity, technically speaking, because they are not in control of Jerusalem. They have been sent back by the king to go back and to rebuild the temple. And so they're not in control of Jerusalem. It's not like they are a sovereign nation at this point. They are still in captivity. But he's prophesying about a time period in which, at at a future date, there is going to be great joy and great gladness and great mirth in the life of Israel. And what we looked at in Sunday school today is that, in fact, about 20 years later, this prophecy would be fulfilled in Nehemiah chapter number 8. As the walls have been rebuilt, the temple now has been rebuilt for about 15, 16 years or so, and now all the walls have been rebuilt, and God is continuing to do a great work in Israel. In Nehemiah chapter number 8, Ezra comes out with a book of the law, reads the book, and a celebration ensues because they understood the word of the Lord. Now, we don't intend to go there today, but as I read over Zechariah chapter number 8 verses 1 through 9, it talks about... The older men and the older women in the streets on their staffs. The idea is that they will be at peace there. That's the the concept of that phrase. It talks about the boys and the girls out playing in the streets. It's referring to a a level of joy in the land of Israel. Now you would have to go on to read, and we'll do this in a moment. You would have to go on to read the rest of Zechariah chapter 8 to see that this is not the way it's always been. That for much of Israel's history, they have gone through an emotional roller coaster. They, they've gone literally from times of captivity to, to times of promised land and then back to captivity again, from victory to defeat to, to victory to defeat. They've gone from joy to heartache. And we must ask ourselves the question this morning why is that the case with them? What specifically is happening in their lives spiritually? that's causing this roller coaster to whip them around so much. What we find as we study the history of Israel is that the reason why they went from promised land to captivity, from victory to defeat, and from joy to heartache is because they went from being near the Lord to being far away. I mean, if I were to sum it up with one sentence as to why they suffered... Such emotional and spiritual turmoil throughout their entire history, it really is that simple. That every time they were close to God, there was victory, there was hope, there was joy, there was peace. And every time they were far away, all of those things slipped from them. And so this morning, my hope is to share with you a concept from this passage of Scripture. The title of this morning's sermon is the joy of serving King Jesus. The joy of serving King Jesus. What's really, really sad is that we see a lot of Christians today choosing to have a long-distance relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a personal choice. It's, It's not something that has to be the case. Now, if you want to go ahead and try to argue your point that somehow... You have to have a long-distance relationship with Jesus. You go right ahead and argue your point. But I believe Scripture gives us example after example after example that this does not have to be the case. You know, I'll never forget whenever we left Indiana to head to Florida. uh, I I was on my way uh, to making that decision. And I I was thinking ahead five, six months at that time to what it was going to feel like and what it was going to be like to say goodbye to everyone I loved without the intention of ever coming home. And as I thought ahead to it, I I just, I had to put it out of my mind because it was such a painful thought of having to, from going to this close relationship with my family and friends to a long distance relationship with my family and friends was just a devastating thing in my heart. Nevertheless, as we got closer and closer, we me and my fiance at the time, we weren't married yet, but as we got closer and closer to getting married and then leaving just a, a few short weeks after our marriage, uh, I became inundated with the reality of how hard this was going to be. And I started thinking about, you know, every time when you get the last couple weeks and you're you're going to dinner with your parents, it just it's different because in your mind and in your heart, you're thinking, it could be a year before we do this again. And you, you you go and you you sit down with your brother or your sister and you talk to them. And you think and in the back of your mind, this looming reality that this kind of closeness will no longer exist in my life in just a few short weeks. And I'll tell you, whenever we left, my wife can testify to this. Whenever we left, again, we weren't ever intending to come home. We we went with the intention of being there for the rest of our lives, serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And whenever we left, it was a painful drive. Some of you know what I'm talking about, because you've been there. You've experienced what it's like to say goodbye to the ones you love and to go off to a place where no one is and to try to endure the change of relationship. Just as painful and just as sad as moving away was, When God gave us the liberty to move back home, you can imagine the joy. I'll never forget getting that call. I got a call from my uncle. He did not know, this was on a Monday morning, and he did not know that the Sunday, just the day before, the pastor had brought all of the staff of the church down in Florida in together, sat us down together, threw some papers out in front of us to describe what type of a situation that ministry was in, and it was in dire straits. And when I say dire straits, I mean like doors getting ready to close on the church type of dire straits. And no one knew. We were completely clueless. It was news to us, and that was on Sunday. And I'll never forget that that Sunday as we went to bed that night. I thought, what are we going to do? I just can't believe this. I I was appalled. I was stunned. It was a very teachable moment for me. As I saw this ministry plummeting deeper and deeper. And there was no way out at this point. And the very next day I got a call. Unbeknownst to my uncle that this had happened the day previous. He calls me on the phone. and He said, hey Seth. He said, I, I just want you to think about something. He said, I, I, I'm almost embarrassed to ask you. I don't, don't really want to ask you. But I'm going to ask you because God laid you on my heart today. And so I'm just going to tell you what I'm thinking. I'm like, okay, where's this going <laughs> He said, hey, I, I think I've been I've been the interim pastor at Rochdale now for about a year and a half. And he said, I, I believe God's moving my heart to accept the position as pastor. And he said, I want you to pray about. and I, He said, I know it sounds crazy because you're there and, and you're happy where you're at. ministry's going well. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you have no idea. <laughs> he goes, I know you're happy where you're at. Everything's going well. But he said, I, I just believe that God wants you here work with me in rochdale And of course, I gave him the go-to response to a, a, re, a request like that. I said, I'll pray about it. Can I be honest with you? I didn't have to pray about it. I knew exactly what God was doing. So we began to go down that road and pursue that avenue. And it was just a matter of a few months later, we were back home again. It was the first of March that year. To serve God in Rochdale then after that. And I'll tell you that the joy of coming home. I mean, I can remember the, that just anticipation as we drove back home. It was just overwhelming the joy that I was getting from the idea of re-entering. That close-knit relationship with my friends and family that I once enjoyed. Now, can I tell you Something. God was with me the whole way through. He was with me there. He was with me here. Whether I was home or away, God has never left me. He's never forsaken me. God is not bound by a location. The the distance that's formed between us and God is not because God cannot get to us. Distance is formed between us and God because we choose not to be with Him. Now, the reason I bring this up and the reason that I use this illustration is to drive home one very important truth. I believe that the lack of joy that Christians are experiencing in our day is directly related to how far we have distanced ourselves from its source. The reason there is so little joy is because the Lord Jesus Christ is the only source... Of eternal joy. The problem that we have is not that God has somehow removed our joy from us. Because that's what we somehow convince ourselves of. That man, God's just taken all my joy away. No, 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 no. The problem is not that God has removed your joy or that your circumstances uh, have stolen your joy. The problem is that we have removed ourselves from God. And the more we remove ourselves from God, the the, the further we distance ourselves from the only eternal source of genuine, soul-deep joy. And again, throughout Israel's history, this has been the case for them. They're near God, and things are wonderful. And then they fall away from God, and things are terrible. And we look at them, and we think, how can they not figure this out? I mean, how is it that... That they go through this and at some point, does not somebody not open their eyes and say, Hey, I know what's wrong. I'm not close to God like I should be. That's why we're having all these problems. And we cast a jaundiced eye on Israel and we think, how could they be so silly? How could they live life so ignorantly? And, and, and as they look at, look, look at the kind of life that they live, surely they should be able to see this. But today I want us to be more introspective. I want us to consider our own hearts this morning. Look at our own lives. And ask ourselves the question, am I as close as I've ever been? Or is there some distance that can be taken care of today? The truth is, as we've been studying in Nehemiah chapter number 8, I believe that God wants the child of God to spend most of his Christian life with rejoicing and joy and celebration. I believe that. I believe it is a big mistake to think that somehow God's intention is for us to just, just stay under the, the, a sense of conviction and guilt and grief for the majority of our lives. That's what God really wants. God just really wants his kids to be miserable. no. I don't believe that for one second. I believe that the majority of the time God wants us to be filled with joy. He wants us to be rejoicing. He wants us to be celebrating his forgiveness, his revelation, his provision for us. That's what God wants for his children. So why isn't why is it not the case then? Again, I believe that the case to be made this morning is the reason that there is a lack of joy. The reason that joy has has fallen away from our lives, that the the reason why we find ourselves complaining and and bemoaning life all the time doesn't have so much to do with what God is doing to us. It has to do with how far we have gone from Him. I want you to look for a second, if you would, with me at Zechariah chapter number 7. Actually, I'll tell you what. Let's look first at Zechariah chapter number 8 and verse 10. We stopped off at verse number 9. In verses 1 through 9, God describes a a time in Israel's history that will be characterized by great and abounding joy. But in verse number 10, he cuts away from this and he shares with us that this has not always been the case. Look at verse number 10. For before these days, there was no hire for man, nor any hire for beast. The idea is there were no jobs. There's no income to be made. Neither was there any peace to him that went out or came in because of the affliction. For I said, All men, every one against his neighbor. But now I will not be unto the residue of this people as in the former days, saith the Lord of hosts. For the seed shall be prosperous. The vine shall give her fruit, and the ground shall give her increase, and the, the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And it shall come to pass that as ye were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and ye shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, As I thought to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, saith the Lord of hosts, and I repented not. So again have I thought in these days to do well unto Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, fear ye not. God indicates in verse number 14 that their fathers, the previous generation, had behaved in such a way that caused distance in the relationship and the result was devastating. Because again, the further we are from God, the further we are from the source of everything wonderful that is a part of our lives. So what exactly did their fathers do then that caused such a distanced and strained relationship? Well, look back with me at Zechariah chapter number 7. What ultimately leads to a separation between us and God? Well, I think it's laid out for us perfectly here. In Zechariah chapter number 7, beginning at verse number 4, the Bible says there, Then came the word of the Lord of hosts unto me, saying, Speak unto all the people of the land, and to the priests, saying, When ye fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those seventy years, did ye at all fast unto me, even to me? And when ye did eat, and when ye did drink, Did not ye eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? You know, the first thing I think he's teaching in verses 4 and 5 that lead to a separation between us and God is simple forgetfulness. Simple forgetfulness. What he's saying is, hey, you were fasting and you were praying. You did it for 70 years. But every time you did it, there was one very important person you did not take into consideration. The person that you said you were fasting and praying to. Basically, what God's saying is, you're going through all the motions. Like, you're doing the stuff you're supposed to do, but it's only this deep. It's not coming from here. It's not coming from here. And I believe what the Bible's teaching us here is that the first thing that leads to separation between us and God is forgetfulness. And we can blame a number of things, but let's be honest. The truth is, is that we become forgetful of God because he doesn't matter as much as the other things do to us. Now, we would would never say that. We would never be so bold to, to just come right out and say that. But that is the truth. The reason we forget God in our daily lives is because he doesn't matter as much as the other things do. It's a convicting thought, isn't it? Forgetfulness ultimately leads to separation. Secondly, selfishness leads to separation. He says in verse 6 and verse number 7 that they ate and drank to themselves. They never ate and drank to the Lord. Celebration was not about what God was doing in their lives. Celebration wasn't about who God was and what he had accomplished. Celebration had just become a time where we can just forget about everything else and enjoy ourselves for a little while. This is the idea there. Verse number 7 says, Should ye not hear the words which the Lord hath cried by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity, and the cities thereof round about her when men inhabited the south and the plain? He said, hey, there's been times where great joy and great mirth was called for and great celebrations were enjoyed, but they weren't about you. They were about me. And now the only celebrations that you're having are drunken celebrations that are just about you and they're not about me. They'd become selfish. No longer were they thinking about their creator, they were only thinking about themselves. And this leads to separation between us and God. Forgetfulness, selfishness. Thirdly, disobedience leads to separation between us and God. Look at verse number eight. It says, And the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment, and show mercy and compassions every man to his brother. And oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. So God lays out for them. He, he's basically saying, This is what I want you to do. If you will implement this into your life, into the congregation of Israel. If you will will make this a part of your life, then I will come back to you. And I will reignite the relationship we once had. And no longer will these be empty, selfish celebrations that you're enjoying. But now it will be a celebration of life and of hope, of love and of real joy. There's a problem though. God gives the instruction in verses 9 and 10, but look at verse 11. But they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law. You know, these phrases that I just now read in verse 11 or verse 10 Uh, I'm sorry, verse 11 and verse 12, these phrases are very interesting. And I do want to take the time to share with you uh, the perspective that I believe God has of our disobedience. The first one is found in the phrase, they refused to hearken. Do you see that at the beginning of verse number 11? It says, but they refused to hearken. I looked that phrase up. I thought, what does that mean? To refuse to hearken. Well, it, it literally means to ignore a person's instructions. Have you ever had somebody do that to you? You were talking to them. And and you really thought you had their attention. And you're talking to them and mid-sentence. They go off on a tangent of something that you weren't even talking about. You ever had that happen? Fellows, if you're like me, you're feeling really convicted right now. (laughs) I am personally experiencing conviction at this very moment. Is my wife in here? She's not in here. I was banking on her being here at that part right there. If you had known some conversations we had in the last four days, you would know this is very relevant. We've all been there, haven't we? You know how God views our our disobedience? He views it as us acting like we're paying attention but not really hearing a word that he said. We know how that feels. We've all been there. We've all experienced that in our own personal lives. So you can imagine a holy, righteous, perfect God who's speaking that to finite, insecure, imperfect humanity. How he would feel for us to just ignore him. That's how God views disobedience. There's a second way God views disobedience here. Not only does he see it as ignoring his instruction, but the second phrase, it says that they pulled away the shoulder. Do you see that? What an interesting phrase. They pulled away the shoulder. All right. Jake, come here. Come here. We're going to show everybody what this looks like. Okay. All right. Jake, you you walk behind me. All right. And as you're walking behind me, I'm going to be walking away from you. And I want you to put your hand on my shoulder. All right. So we're walking along. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. That's what it is, okay? I didn't know how to describe that to you, so I thought I'd put Jake in the hot seat. Thank you, David. You did great. That's what it means to pull the shoulder. The idea is we are walking away from God, and God in His tender, loving mercy comes in behind us, and He puts His hand on our shoulders, slow us down, and turn us around. And instead of feeling God's hand on our shoulder and in humble submission, turning ourselves around to, to see what he has to say. And instead of doing that, God puts his hand on our shoulder and we just go like that and keep on walking in the direction we're going. That's how God feels when we disobey him. That's how God views our disobedience. There's a third thing he says there. It says that he stopped. They stopped their ears. Do you see that? They stopped their ears. Now, Everybody do this. Ready? Put put your fingers up like that. Everybody do that. Now put them like that. Now go like this. Now you got to take them off so you can hear me. Okay, there we go. That's what that means. Has your kids ever done that to you, to your face? Fortunately, mine have not. I know they'll regret the day that happens. But let me tell you something. If my nine-year-old boy... Looked me square in the face and went like this while I was talking to him. We'll just stop right there because this is going to go out to the public and we'll just stop right there. But you understand, right, how disrespectful that actually is. But do you realize that every time we disobey God, that's what we're doing? God's trying to speak to us. He's trying to get through to us. And it's because he loves us. It's because he knows what's best for us. And all the time we're looking at God and going, nah, nah nah. nah, nah. Hmm. Finally, it says that they had their hearts hardened as an adamant stone. Do you see that at the beginning? Verse number 12. Yea, okay, they made their hearts as an adamant stone. Well, that's a strange phrase. Why didn't he just say a stone? What is an adamant stone? What is, that, what is that insinuating? You know what an adamant stone is? It's a diamond. Look it up. The idea is it's a stone that is so hard that other stones will be shattered trying to penetrate that stone. That that stone is actually used to crush other stones, because it's so hard. He says they've made their hearts like a diamond. And we're not talking about a beautiful, gorgeous cut diamond, okay? What he's saying is they've made their hearts so hard that nothing can penetrate and nothing can move them. That's how God views our disobedience. That kind of disobedience, a refusing to hearken, ignoring his instructions, shrugging off his love, plugging our ears to his word, and hardening our hearts to his will. It's that kind of disobedience that leads to separation between us and God. So, what is the result of this separation? It's misery. That that is the result of separation between us and God. It's misery. We will be utterly miserable. When there's distance between us and God. And we wonder why we're miserable all the time. Think about this. This just makes good sense. We wonder why we're so miserable all the time. We just live in misery. Constant misery. Why is that? Because there is distance between us and God. Created not by God because He's not limited by distance, by location. Created by us. Created by us forgetting about Him and being selfish in our daily walk and being disobedient to His Word. You take the time this afternoon to read the very end of chapter number 7, verses 13 and 14, and you'll see what this miserable condition looks like. I don't want to leave you with that, though, the sadness of separation. I want to also point you out to the journey back to the Lord Jesus. Look with me at Zechariah chapter number 8. Zechariah chapter number 8 and we'll look at verse number 15. I know it's time. We'll close here quickly. The journey back to Jesus. How do we get back to an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it's spelled out for us perfectly here. In Zechariah chapter number 8 verse 15 it says, So again, have I thought in these days to do well unto Jerusalem and to the house of Judah? Fear ye not. These are the things that ye shall do. Now, very rarely in your Bible is it this clear. Okay? Most of the time it's worded in such a way that we've got to pick it apart. It's not worded that way here. Literally, God says, You want to have our relationship restored? This is the things that ye shall do. Here they are. It says, Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor, execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. And let none, of your imagine, let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. And love no false oath. For all these are things that I hate, saith the Lord. Now, if I could, I just want to quickly try to bring that into our own language. What is he really saying must happen here? Well, before we could ever spread the truth, we've also, we, we first must return to the truth. Say, how do I reignite the relationship that I once had with God? You have got to return to the truth. You've got to come back to it. Say, well, I'm five months behind in my Bible reading. That's okay. Just start on this week. Whatever tomorrow's date is, you just find that on your Bible reading schedule and you start back tomorrow. Satan would love to make you think that you've got to catch up five months before you can start again. And for that reason, you'll go another six months before you read it again. Isn't it funny how that works? Just pick it up and start again. Return to the truth of God's word. Then secondly, spread the truth of God's word. Begin to speak about it. Begin to bring it up in conversation and talk to others about it. Thirdly, obey the truth. Do what God has told you to do. No longer then are you someone that's doing this to God, but now your ears are wide open and you're just waiting with bated breath on what God's going to tell you to do next. Obey the truth and then conform your life to the truth. When Israel did this in Nehemiah chapter number 8, what we've been studying in Sunday school, when, Nehemiah, when Ezra comes out with the law of God and the people return to the truth, they begin to spread the truth, they obey the truth and they conform to the truth. When they do this, revival breaks out. The relationship is restored. Finally, we close with this thought, the cheerfulness of companionship. The cheerfulness of companionship. In Zechariah chapter number eight and verses eighteen through twenty-three. We won't take the time to read them. But what we find is that once they begin to do this, they return to the truth of God's word, they begin to spread the word of God, they obey the truth of his word, they conform to his word. As they do this, what they are really doing is they are inviting the king back into their land. When they invite the king back into their land, look at Zechariah chapter 8, verse 3. It says, Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion. The idea is he wasn't there. He had been kicked out by the people. But now he says, I'm returned. I've come back. And the result of him coming back now, the older folks of the land, they're standing peacefully in the streets. The children are playing out in their yards. There is great joy and great mirth when the king is welcomed back. You know what I believe some Christians need to do today? They need to welcome the king back into their land. They need to let down the drawbridge of their hardened exterior. And say, Jesus, would you you retake the throne of my life? My joy has been lost. Peace stolen. Contentment ruined. And I know why. It's because I kicked you off the throne of my life. And God, I want you to come back. And what we find in... Look at verse 19 with me. We'll read just that one verse. It says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, The fat of the fourth month... I'm sorry, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love the truth and peace. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, I know for 70 years you've been fasting during these time periods, but now no longer do I want you to fast because I'm home. You've invited me back and now we're together again. And because we're together again, I don't want you to fast this time. Now I want you to celebrate with cheerful feasts. I want you to celebrate love and peace. That's what I want you to do. What we find is that whenever the king is welcomed back and fellowship with the king is restored, that at the same time that happens... Joy is restored and celebration is restored. Love is restored and truth is restored. Peace is restored and influence and prayer and the glory of God. They're all restored when the king is welcomed home. You know, you can't help but be filled with joy and gladness when you have a close relationship with King Jesus. You know why? Because of who our king is. Our King Jesus is a King that's known by His sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. Our King Jesus is a living King. He's eternal. He is a loving King that provides for our every need. He is a powerful King. and Merciful. The Bible says His mercies are new every morning. The truth is, if you've trusted Him as your Savior, He is your King. And with a King like that, How couldn't we help but be joyful? I believe that you can live with joy knowing King Jesus as your king. I believe that if you'll place your faith and trust in him, if you've never done that before, you'll experience that kind of joy. Now, I'm not going to promise you that all your problems will go away. But in light of your problems, you'll still be able to have great joy and great peace in Christ. To the child of God whose joy has been stolen from them, I I don't know why you choose a long-distance relationship with God. I really don't. I'm saying that as a guilty party because I've done the same thing. There are times of my life that I choose a long distance relationship with God and the results speak for themselves. I am miserable when I'm living like that. I'm just being honest with you. You say, well preacher, when was the last time you were living like that? It wouldn't be as long as you'd like to think. Whenever there is distance between you and the only eternal source of joy, you will lose your joy. But when the relationship is restored, suddenly you'll find yourself filled back up with the joy that you thought you'd lost forever. Why? Because your king is really all you need. King Jesus.